Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to be with you. We are in a short sermon series looking at the prophets Elijah and Elisha from First and Second Kings. And in First Kings, we encounter the prophet Elijah, whose job was to make clear the stark difference between the living God and all the fake gods that the Israelites were running after. And now we get to Second Kings, and Elijah has died, and his role and authority has passed to the prophet Elisha. So today we're going to look at 2 Kings 4, 1 through 7. Uh, you can open up your Bibles. It's also printed in your order of worship. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my children to be his slaves. And Elijah said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. And when the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. And then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live off the rest. This is God's word given to us for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, our prayer this morning is that you would meet each of us wherever we find ourselves, and that you would use this word in particular, this story, to draw us closer to Jesus, to help us to see who we are, to help us to see greater who he is and his great love for us, and would you change us by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, back in May, uh, Rachel and I and the kids were out on one of our evening walks, and uh, we, as we meandered through our neighborhood, I saw a sign on a lamppost that read, found cat, over a picture of a black cat. And I thought the wording was interesting, because I'm used to seeing signs that say, lost cat. And so I remarked to Rachel, oh, they found that cat, as if I knew this cat personally. And I was imagining that people from the neighborhood had been out looking for their cat, and they found it, and so they wanted the other people to know that the search was called off, which I thought was neighborly of them. And Rachel was like, no, that's not what that sign means. It means that someone found a cat, and now they are looking for the owner. And of course, we uh, busted out into laughter, uh, mostly at me and my interpretation of this sign. But in my defense, I think there are a number of ways they could have written this sign to make it much more clear. Like, I found a cat, call me if it's yours. Now sometimes when something is unfamiliar to us, we have to encounter it a few times before we really understand it. Especially when that thing departs from what we would expect. And I think that's why God gives us not one, not two, but 80 stories or instructions about widows in the Bible. 
And if you felt some deja vu as I read our passage, it's because two weeks ago we heard a similar passage, a similar story. We heard about how the prophet Elijah performed a miracle to multiply a widow's last bit of flour and oil, thereby saving her and her son from starvation during a time of famine. And because we've heard this kind of story before, we know that there is something important here for us to recognize. And I think that the Apostle James sums up what we're meant to see that we had in our New Testament lesson. He says, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father is this, caring for orphans and widows in their distress. Now our story begins by telling us about a woman whose husband's death leaves her in a kind of double desperation. Now, we don't know what caused her husband to go into debt, but it's clear that she has no means of paying it off. And apparently, her her two sons are too young to step into the role of provider. But they are not too young to be forcibly taken as indentured servants to resolve the debt. And you can hear the aggravation in her words to Elisha. My husband is dead, and though he was a good man who feared the Lord, the creditor has come to enslave my children. She cannot see a way forward, but she knows that this is not right. And she's correct. This is not the way life was supposed to go amongst God's people. There were systems built into God's law that were meant to provide for the poor and the destitute. For example, there was the law of Leverite marriage, by which after a husband died, a close relative was encouraged to marry the widow so that she would not be left out of the family inheritance. And in Deuteronomy, creditors were instructed not to take a widow's clothes or property to resolve a debt because so many widows lived on the very edge of destitution. But of course, these, these systems required people's willingness and obedience to make them work. And the stark reality is that no one is coming forward to assist this widow. She and her kids have fallen through the cracks. Now what our passage affirms this morning for us is that poverty is much more complicated than not having enough money. We could say that this woman is also impoverished due to her relational vulnerability. She doesn't have anyone stepping in when things go wrong. Now, for many of us sitting here, if something terrible happened, we have many layers of support that we could fall back on before we end up on the street. Family, extended family, the church, government assistance, financial aid. But for this woman, in this time, in this place, she is truly on her own. She's also subject to social vulnerability. There is no judge or magistrate who is available for her to plead her case. She has to go to a prophet and hope for a miracle. And church, I think something is fundamentally wrong when you have to ask for a miracle to keep your kids from being taken away from you. You see, what we're seeing here is there is oppression here. There is threat to human dignity threat to humanity. And of course, it's not just widows in Scripture who experience poverty and vulnerability. In the same passages where widows show up, 
orphans and foreigners and workers who are taken advantage of are often mentioned as well. Now, if we translate this to our day, we can think about anyone living on the edge, easily preyed on by others for profit, and kept at the bottom of the social order largely by forces outside of their control. And church, it's important for us to see that this deeply offends God. As we read about widows in Scripture, we see that God is highly attuned, deeply committed to those with these sorts of vulnerabilities. God clearly tells His people again and again, as He does in Exodus 22, right after God delivered His people out of slavery. He says, you shall not mistreat any widow or orphan. And if you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry, and my wrath will burn. And in Malachi 3, God says that he will be both the prosecuting attorney and the judge to those who wrong the most vulnerable, and he will execute justice. This is serious business from the point of view of God the Father. And so I think it makes sense that God's prophet, Elisha, would share God's heart when this widow cries out to him. You know, unlike in the previous chapter when Elisha had scoffed at the arrogant king Jehoram when he asked for Elisha's help, with this widow, there is an immediacy, there is an intensity in his concern. Elisha says, what can I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And her answer is, I have nothing in the house, just a tiny bit of oil and that is it. And the mention of oil is meant to highlight her lack. It's maybe like you or me saying, there is nothing in the house, but the electricity hasn't been turned off yet. And like with the story of the widow we heard two weeks ago, God begins with the little that this woman has, even though what she has is utterly insufficient to meet her needs. And I think that this is the place where we can start to dip our toe in and find our place and find ourselves in this story. You know, the widow, widow's poverty is very obvious, but she is not the only one who is poor. We have all had moments, usually very lonely moments, when on some level we know that we don't have enough, or worse, that we ourselves are not enough. It's that little voice that says, I'm not smart enough to figure this out. I don't have what it takes to make this relationship work. I'm not brave enough to go through with this thing that I know I need to do. The poverty of the widow was such that she had no choice but to turn to God. It was either that or despair and die. But for those of us who have access to resources, I think that often our first move is to try to shore ourselves up, to bury our insecurity, to distract ourselves with work or play, to numb ourselves with excess so we don't have to feel the discomfort of our vulnerability anymore. But this, is good, this, this story is good news for us when we, when we feel our poverty, our not-enoughness. You see, it's not just that God can do, uh, can work with just a little. He surely can. It's that God's MO 
is to use the little that we have. That's where he starts most often. And our poverty is where he meets us. Whether that be just a little bit of faith, just a little bit of hope, like the tiniest seed, he can build a whole kingdom off of that. And I think when we are able to sit with our lack and acknowledge to God, God, I only have a little bit of patience left. God can do a lot with that. I only have just a little bit of desire to forgive. Watch how he can stretch that out and bring goodness. And do you know who knows this? Elisha knows this. So he isn't at all phased when this woman says that she has next to nothing in the house. And then he gives her a very detailed checklist of things to do. He tells her to go and get lots of empty vessels from her neighbors and not to skimp on how many she gets. And then he tells her to go back home, shut the door, and start filling them. Now, mind you, he does not tell her how this is going to translate into stopping the creditors from taking her sons away. And even though she doesn't know how this will end, she gets to work. She hustles to follow his instructions faithfully. And then when she has a whole bunch of oil, she comes to Elisha and he gives her the rest of the plan. He tells her, sell the oil, pay the debts, and live off the leftovers. Now what strikes me about this miracle is that it feels really inefficient. It's, it's protracted. Uh, it, it's, it's not like the blind man getting sight. You want to see? Here you go. There's this whole process to it, and it's contingent on so many factors. And I can't help but think of the growing excitement and delight as God provides at each juncture, and the bigger picture becomes clearer to her. Like the relief when her neighbors are happy to hand over their pottery. The way her heart pounds as she is filling the jars up, and she sees her son's eyes widen as they say, Wow, Mama, the oil is still flowing. Like every step of the way, every step of the process tutors her in God's tender care and provision for her. And he provides with a brilliance that flows out of the reality that he knows her intimately. Church, she doesn't just need a pile of money. She needs a community to care for her and to belong to. And in this protracted miracle, God provides it. Where her family either chose not to or was not able to, God pulls in her neighbors into the story. And their generosity becomes the means by which this miracle is able to play out. And socially, though her circumstances had left her helpless, God, in this miracle, transforms this woman into a businesswoman who's out selling oil in the marketplace. What is so delightful about this particular miracle is that God uses her abilities and he honors her competence as well as her faith. Now, I want to be clear. We are not looking for the silver lining in her trauma. This is, 
This is much bigger than silver linings. This teaches us something about who God is. This is God prevailing in the face of death and darkness. This is a foretaste of Jesus putting his neck, putting his heel on the neck of evil. And if you remember in our New Testament lesson that Jeannie read, John the Baptist is in prison and he sends his disciples, disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who was promised to come or we, should we look for someone else? Now Jesus doesn't answer their question with a yes or no. Instead he says, go back to John and report what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. How do we know that Jesus is the king, the one in whose kingdom every sad and wrong thing will come untrue? It's the fruit of his life and ministry that testifies to it. How do we know that we are citizens of his kingdom? The fruit of our lives grows to reflect our king. Church, care, the care and vulnerability, care and vulnerability will be a central value to which we commit significant amounts of our time and our treasures. You know, while poverty almost always leads to exclusion in God's kingdom, he says that the least are to be seated at the head of the table. And that means that you and I may find that we are called to volunteer to give up our seat in order to make room. And while poverty's iron grip whispers messages of hopelessness and despair, we may be called to humbly live on less so that we can give away more to honor and restore hope and dignity in another. And why caring for the most vulnerable among us is so near to God's heart is that when we look in the face of poverty, we see our own poverty staring back at us. We see that we are all widows, orphans, and strangers. We're all desperately afraid of loneliness, and yet it finds us. We fear that when push comes to shove, we are all on our own. We wrestle with the sorrow of knowing that there are very few people in this world who really know us, if any. And unexpectedly and miraculously, it is when we fill our poverty that we find the doorway into the life of the kingdom. Here's the good news that we have to encounter again and again before we understand it, because it departs from what we would expect. That our elder, elder brother Jesus, though he was rich, became poor for our sake, so that by his poverty, we could be rich. This is why Jesus came saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. By his work on our behalf, you and I, we get to inherit a family, a home, a treasure stored up where moth and rust cannot destroy, a father who searches and knows us.
And church, my, my prayer for you and me is that may we have ears to hear and eyes that can see and hearts that can perceive Jesus' invitation to us this morning. Amen and amen.